0: We're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians 15, a little bit of a larger section today, verses 35 through 49. 1 Corinthians fifteen, thirty-five to 49. Let's go ahead and begin uh, with a word of prayer. Lord, we rejoice in the gospel sufficiency that we find in Scripture. We rejoice in the sufficiency of your word, even as we saw at the 9 a.m. service, the sufficiency of your word to address the issues of our day, the philosophies of our day. We rejoice that you have even given to us your word, and we pray that you might help us to conform ourselves to it because of what we hear today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. James Bedford Day is celebrated every year on January 12th, probably a very small portion of society knows what james bedford day is it is celebrated by people in the cryogenics world james bedford died on january 12th 1967 at 73 years old and he was the first human being ever to be put in cryogenic storage his body has been frozen for the past 55 years, and his body currently resides frozen at the Alcor Life Extension Foundation in some sort of vat of liquid nitrogen. The hope that those have uh, of some one day resurrecting their physical bodies in this kind of a way is certainly a vain hope. Uh, but the hope that they have is a hope that one day, once technology has advanced far enough, James, along with others who have been frozen, which I believe there are several hundred, they will one day be able to be revived and cured of whatever illness that they had when they died, including uh, the issue that faces all of us, and that is old age. The Cryonics Institute is one such organization involved in freezing people, and I'm going to read to you a little bit of what uh, they say on their website. Imagine a world free of disease, death, and aging. I can't imagine that world because we're told about it in scripture, but they say imagine a world free of disease, death, and aging. At the Cryonics Institute, we believe that day is inevitably coming and that the science of cryonics is presently our best chance of getting there. Our mission is to extend human lifespans by preserving the body using existing technologies with the goal of revival by future science. The president of Alcor uh, explains the sentiment of many of his members. We don't want to be cryo-preserved, we hate the idea in fact. The idea of sitting in a tank of liquid nitrogen, not able to control our destinies is not appealing, but it's a lot more appealing than the alternative to be digested by worms or incinerated. That does not appeal to us at all. Now, I would say that probably as a human society, we're fascinated by (laughs) this kind of a thing. Uh, Movies have been created where people are frozen and then revived later. And the human desire to cheat death is a strong one, is it not? I mean, not any of us probably looks forward to the day of our passing, uh, save the thought of Christ and the resurrection of our own bodies. What possible way can we extend our own lives and attain to some sort of a resurrection? That is a thought that has consumed many minds, And that really is the topic of our discussion today. What way possibly could we be resurrected? What way possibly could we extend our lives beyond this present world? And uh, the hint I'll give you is it is not by freezing our bodies in a vat of liquid nitrogen. The issue that we are facing in our present text in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 is that Paul is dealing with a group of people that actually don't believe in the resurrection. And in order to uh, push their case a little bit further, Paul has worked from this group of people who say, we don't believe in a resurrection, to our present text, to where this group of people says, okay, fine. Well, there is a resurrection. What do their bodies look like? Answer that question. (laughs) You know what? And there's almost, you can tell, an underlying almost sarcasm in the way that the question is being posed. And Paul gives to us an apologetic or a defense of the resurrection. He has been doing this throughout 1 Corinthians 15. We spent several messages looking at this passage. And so let's go ahead and jump in for our passage today. We're going to begin in verse uh, 35, and we're going to go, as I mentioned, to verse 49. We read this, But someone will ask, How are the dead raised? But the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars, for stars differ from star in glory. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory." It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. If there's a natural body, there's also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man Adam became a living being, the last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust, the second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so are those who are of heaven uh, or so are those who are of the dust, as is the man of heaven, so also are those of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. We are going to look at this in four sections. Uh, I apologize for the lack of creativity in the outline today, but simply we're going to see an objection and answer number one, answer number two, and answer number three. And this is really the section or the the, the format That Paul is going to follow uh, for us today. So let's begin here right in verse 35 with the objection simply stated. Paul leads into this section with a Corinthian objection, and the objection simply is this. Someone will ask, how are the dead raised, and with what kind of body do they come? Now, the rest of today's section, you can write down, that the rest of the section today is an answer or multiple answers to this one question. This one question is accompanied by all this passage and all this text answering this simple objection. And there is something in this passage that we have to remember, uh, be reminded of, and that is 1 Corinthians 15 as a whole is the go-to passage in scripture on the defense of resurrection, okay? Not just Christ's resurrection, as it is talked about in here, but also the resurrection of our own bodies as believers in Christ. And this chapter, as we have said and noted, is devoted to one doctrine. It is devoted to this specific doctrine of the resurrection. And consequently, we had noted earlier in this uh, chapter that there are only five imperative verbs In the whole chapter and as you remember an imperative verb is a verb of command we tend to find many of our uh, christian applications to doctrine in the imperative verbs do this do that you should not do this you should act this way those are imperatives and there are very few in this passage as a whole because paul is mainly concerned with providing uh, a defense of this particular doctrine in fact this passage really is one big debate is, is what it is. It's one big argument for the truth of the resurrection from uh, the dead. And so the objection that we face here is very clear. The objection or the question is, how are the dead raised? And this question only makes sense if God is excluded from the picture. I mean, these Corinthian Christians should not have even been asking this question in the first place because of, what, because of God. And so this question that they pose only makes sense in a world where there is no such thing as God. And so Paul is going to be, in fact, kind of harsh in his answer to this question. Uh, after all, the, the earth, I mean, if you're thinking of this from their perspective, or if you're thinking of this question uh, from the perspective of there is no God, uh, the question may make sense from that perspective the earth and the universe being 6,000 years old. Lots and lots of people have died. And people who lived 6,000 years ago, their bodies exist today only in the form of dust, probably scattered now over the face of the earth. People have been ripped apart by wild animals. People have died at sea. People have been burned to death, and so on and so forth. And so the question that they ask Makes sense to them. But they're asking the question, how could these bodies that have been scattered all over the face of the planet undergo a resurrection? What kind of body is going to come from that? That is the question. And Paul begins to answer this question in the next verse. And perhaps here it would be appropriate to quote Paul from the book of Acts as kind of an initial. Uh, answer to this question, and that is Acts 26 and verse 8, where he's before, as you remember, King Agrippa, and Paul simply says, why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? Are, are, you, are you seriously pondering this question? I mean, is this seriously a problem for you that, that God, you think God couldn't do this? So speak, you think God is somehow unable to do this particular task? And that is the question. And he gives to us the first answer in verses 36 through 38. And he begins here with really a harsh statement um, where he says in verse 36, you foolish person. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or some other grain. But God gives to it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. Now, the Greek in this, you see in the English, or the ESV, if that's what you have in front of you, um, says, you foolish person. Um, the ESV, I think, probably a little bit softens it. The Greek literally just says fool. Um in fact, most translations tend to soften a little bit. The, the NIV, I think, softens it even more when it says, how foolish, as if it... We're not, we're not going to call anyone a fool specifically. We'll just say, how foolish. It's some random thought out there when, when, when the Greek just says, fool. <laughs> You're a fool to, to even ask the question in the first place. It's interesting to me um, for, for what it's worth um, that American Christianity, in general, I think we have a tendency to to soften uh, the hard parts of Scripture. Um, and this is a topic, I think, for another day, but one question to ponder is, why is it as American Christians that we have a tendency to dislike the sharp cutting rebukes of Scripture and embrace everything else about it? One of our tasks is... Um, to, uh, to, to avoid a lopsided Christianity, right? We want to avoid a, a kind of Christianity that is lopsided in that it only promotes certain portions of Christianity and hides or obscures other portions of Christianity. And so we want to be, as Christians, well-rounded we've talked about this many times and we've simply used the phrase that we want to be whole bible christians right we want to be well-rounded enough as believers in christ to be able to both to do both of these tasks and that is number one to offer the comforting portions of scripture when uh, applicable and or offer the cutting portions when applicable we don't want to become lopsided in one direction or another we want to be well-rounded in our christianity Uh, but back to the point at hand paul gives a stinging rebuke Um, he is saying that they are fools um, for even asking the question of course you know the modern phrase uh where we say there's no such thing as a dumb question right and uh, any of you who are teachers out there know that there is such thing as a dumb question okay (laughs) and paul apparently thinks that's the case here because he doesn't even he doesn't say oh guys that's i mean no question is a dumb question he says this is a dumb question (laughs) he says you fool what Are you serious? You believe in God, and you wonder how he can raise someone from the dead. This is a foolish question. And nevertheless, he is willing to entertain it. And so he says essentially this. He says, why do you wonder how the dead are raised? So easy, and so simple, and so elementary, and so basic is this reality that you should understand that you are already watching many resurrections happen every single day around you. This is is what he says. He says, why do you wonder how resurrections could happen when you already see resurrections happening all the time? Now, what, what are we talking about here? This is the case because Paul makes the argument that seeds... Little tiny seeds are kind of like a, a prototypical resurrection of sorts. It, he's using this as an illustration, or as an example. It is a principle It, it is a principle built into the fabric of nature that you sow a, a dead seed into the ground, and life comes from that. I mean, all you have to do is look out the window and you see that happening all around you. Now imagine that you find a man, for some reason, I don't know why, has never seen anything grow in his entire life. Maybe he's lived his whole life in some kind of an underground concrete bunker or whatever the scenario is, okay? And you walk up to him and and you show him a handful of seeds, and he's never seen seeds before, he's never read about them, he's never heard any of this kind of stuff before, and you tell him, if you put these in the ground, entire trees and bushes and grass and fruit is going to come from these little tiny dead things he would look at you like you're insane he, he he would say what are you talking about this is this is an impossibility he may even laugh at you and ridicule you and mock you but for us it is the most basic one of the most basic things about nature is that you put this dead little thing into the ground and Giant trees can come from these little tiny seeds. So why is a resurrection so hard to understand? You see, that's what Paul is saying here. Um, here's here's what Paul is saying. I I think I have it up here somewhere. No, I don't think so. I think you guys are on last week's uh, presentation or something. Anyway, follow along if you can. If not, I'll just read it all. Okay. Uh, For us, the resurrection is something that we ought to be able to understand because it is so basic to human nature. And here's answer number one, okay? Answer number one is this. If you watch one dead thing go into the ground and rot and life comes out of that, why is it so hard for you to watch another dead thing, our bodies, to go into the ground and rot and life comes from that? And this is the point that he's given. He's saying, you watch these things happen all the time. We live in a world where this is the norm. It's not a fringe thing. Everywhere you go, literally on the planet, you can see the result of dead things going into the ground and rotting and life coming out of that. That's what you see everywhere you go. But as 37 through 38 note uh, says here, the things that come out of the ground are different from the things that go into the ground. Look at verses 37 through 38. He says this, And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or some other grain. But God gives to it a body as he's chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. Specifically, he says this, that what you sow is not the body that is to be, meaning that there is a change that takes place, okay? So if you take an acorn, everybody knows what an acorn looks like, okay? And you see an oak tree, they don't look alike, right? They look different from one another, okay? But acorns always produce oak trees, okay? You don't put an acorn in the ground, and you get a raspberry bush from that. And so what Paul is saying is that there is a certain kind of a continuity and there's a certain kind of a difference. That's all he's saying. It's very basic. Okay, He's saying, in the same way, when we die, there is a continuity that happens at the resurrection. There is a similarity. There is something that connects us uniquely to our resurrected bodies, and yet they're not identical. They're not the same exact thing. There's some differences that happen there. Um. That, that is, and, and one of the things actually, and we'll get to this in a minute, is that our bodies are weak, they are fragile, they're prone to illness, and of course prone to death, so on and so forth. We need bodies that yes, have a continuity with our current bodies, but also a kind of body that is not weak and prone to sickness and illness. And those are the kinds of things that will change with our resurrection bodies. That's answer number one. Answer number one is, you guys see life coming from dead things all the time, so you shouldn't be surprised when life comes from dead things. That's the normal pattern of life. That's answer number one. Answer number two is found in verses 39 through 41, and that is this. He said, Paul writes and says, for not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans, Another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is another. There is one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars, for star differs from star in glory. Here he describes simply the diversity in God's created order. There are animals, there are humans, there are plants, there are planets, there are moons. God did not create just one thing. Have you ever noticed that? Have you ever noticed that there's like lots of different things in the world that God created? It is for this reason, actually, and I don't know that this phrase would be too popular today, but the Jews used to refer to God as the great discriminator, meaning that God has discriminated in his creation. He has not created everything to be identical. He has not created only water or only the sky. He's not created only the universe, outer space. He's not created only stars. He's not created only people. He's created everything with all of this kind of uh, discrimination going on in his creative work. Now, all you need to know uh, to understand this, there's there's one prerequisite, to understanding Paul's second answer and that is this you have to have eyes in your head okay if you have eyes in your head you can understand answer number 2 okay my understanding is that there are more than 7500 different kinds of apples in the world okay that's only apples that's it just apples okay now multiply that diversity in God's creation by all of the thousands of plants and animals and all of that that God has created. There there are endless variations of everything. There are snowflakes at this very moment. Somewhere on planet Earth, snowflakes are falling at this very moment And those snowflakes have crystal patterns that are so unique to that individual snowflake that no human eye will ever behold that snowflake and that unique pattern. Right now, somewhere on earth, those snowflakes exist, and you will never set your eyes on that, and you will never appreciate God's unique creation of that snowflake in that particular way. Why does God do that? Because it brings him delight. He is observing it, and he is seeing his handiwork, and he is delighting in this particular aspect of his creation that you and I will never see or appreciate. There are planets in our solar system that no telescope will ever see. God is sustaining right now at this very moment the gravity between planets and stars that you will never know of and that you will never appreciate, Why does God do that? Because it brings him pleasure. And he sees those things and he observes them and he looks at the laws of nature that he has baked into the universe and how everything is behaving in a way that it ought to behave and he gets pleasure and he gets delight from that. Each created thing brings God pleasure and according to this passage that we're looking at right now, Each created thing in the universe carries with it its own kind of glory. There's a glory for this. There's a glory for that. This is unique and that's unique, so on and so forth. God has created, because it brings him to light, these various glories to differ. And the point is that our resurrected bodies will differ in glory from our current bodies. Okay? Now remember, Paul is answering a question. And that question is one that he deemed to be a foolish one, but he answers it nonetheless. Okay? And this is what the answer is to this question, or the second answer, and that is this. Why is it so hard for you to see that our resurrection bodies will be similar yet different? Open your eyes and you will see that God's creation is comprised of differences. You see the progression of the arguments here? They're saying, we don't believe in a resurrection. Okay, but if we did, what kind of bodies do they come in, Paul? Tell us about this, Paul. And he says, well, number one, uh, you guys watch life come from dead things all the time, so that shouldn't surprise you. Uh, Number two, it also shouldn't surprise you that our glorified bodies are gonna look different than our present ones because um, God creates different things. So open your eyes and you'll see that God is not limited to only create one thing. That's number two. And now he goes on to the third answer, which is in 42 through 49. Now, I want to preface this final section by telling you at the outset something that you might find somewhat frustrating, and that is there is a limit to how many mysteries are going to be revealed by this text, okay? In other words, some of you may walk away from this particular message with more questions than answers, okay? You, you, may, you may walk away and saying, give me more details. What will the resurrected body look like specifically? Am I going to look like I look at 25 years old? Am I going to look like my 30-year-old self? What will my appearance be like? Will we have stomachs in heaven? What, give me the specific details of how all of these things are going to happen and, and uh, is my hair color going to be the same? How is all this going to work out? I am sorry to tell you that those kinds of questions are not answered by this passage, okay? Okay. And those kinds of questions will remain a mystery after this particular text. And if I can put a piece of application in here, right here and right now, that is, be content with that. Okay? We believe in the sufficiency of Scripture, and God has given to us the information that we need to know. And apparently we don't need to know all of the particularities of how all that works. But there are general questions at this portion of Scripture is going to answer look at verse 42 he says so it is with the resurrection of the dead what is sown is perishable what is raised is imperishable it is sown in dishonor it is raised in glory it is sown in weakness it is raised in power it is sown in nat." you see the differences he's giving here you want to know what it looks like okay it is sown in natural body it is raised a spiritual body if there's a natural body there's also a spiritual body Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit, of course, referring to Christ. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was a man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. As is a man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we also shall bear the image of the man of heaven. There are four contrasts given between the earthly body and the resurrection body, okay? You want to know what the differences are between my body as it exists right now and the body that I will have, the resurrection body, here they are, right here. Not every detail you want to know, but he gives some details. The first contrast is between perishable, and imperishable. You understand the difference between those two things, right? Perishable, prone to corruption. This is in verse 42. The body that dies, meaning if you're listening to me right now, the body that you possess is a perishable body. It is prone to corruption. It is prone to sickness. It is prone to illness. And it is prone ultimately to to physical death. Now, the Jewish view was that the body that is raised would be completely and totally identical in every way to our present body. But that's not the biblical view because we have one of the differences here, and that is your present body is perishable, your future body will be imperishable. Uh, Let's note in particular Romans 8.21 that says, The creation itself will be set free from its bondage to what? Bondage to corruption. Okay, creation, and this is of course all of creation at the the um, at the end of the age. But our bodies will be included in this, and that they will no longer be prone to corruption any longer. Our bodies will no longer be subject to decay. No more will we deal with deformities, sickness, illness, burns, infections, hearing loss, blindness getting older, or any of those kinds of things. We will be given bodies suited to an eternal and incorruptible existence. We will not need surgeries or doctor's appointments. We will have incorruptible bodies. That is contrast number one. Contrast number two is in verse 33. Dishonor versus glory. There is a certain dishonor. Inherent in our present bodies, right? But sin. You're you still have the flesh, so to speak. You, we still sin in our present bodies. There is a dishonorableness about that. Uh, not only is our our bodies dishonorable from that perspective, there is a certain kind of dishonor in the impending. Physical death, but we will be raised in what? In glory, we will no longer be subject to the influence of sin any longer. Anyone grateful for that? I I, sh, I should have uh, thinking of this in the moment. Okay, uh, I can't remember who it was, but it was one of I think the Puritans. Um, who was on his deathbed, and I'm paraphrasing it, but he basically said as he was dying, goodbye sin. That's what this verse is is talking about. Sown in dishonor, but raised in glory. There is no more sin at, at, at the resurrection. That's contrast number two. Contrast number three is same verse, verse 43, and here we have weakness versus power. And of course, we understand that the effects of the fall have caused us to be weak. I think if we were all honest, we would understand that there is a certain weakness that we're prone to. Uh, That will change after the resurrection. And then finally, the last contrast is in verse 44, and that is the natural versus the spiritual. Our current bodies are natural, and our resurrection bodies will be spiritual. Now, I want to make one note here, and that is not to confuse what Paul says when he says that we will have a spiritual body and think that he means an immaterial body. Um, And the reason for that, quite simply from the text, is because he uses the word body. An immaterial body is not a body. It's immaterial. Uh, One commentator makes this clear when he says, Paul then does not mean here that God is going to give believers a body composed of spirit or immaterial a nonsensical notion in itself, because you can't have a, a body in that sense, but that he is giving believers a body provided by the Spirit and suited for life in the Spirit. Um, so we will go through a resurrection, a resurrection of physical bodies, uh, but we will be, uh, there will be a continuity between our, our current bodies, but there will also be differences as well. Finally, he looks at the power that gives us these glorified bodies, which is namely what? Who, it's easy if I say who, who gives us the power? Christ, right? Christ is the one who does this. And he does this by distinguishing uh, Adam and Christ, right? You have the first Adam and the final last Adam. Uh, And so Adam, in verse 45, we're told... <clears throat> he has life and Christ in the same verse verse 45 what's the difference you see the difference there between adam and christ adam possesses life christ what verse 45 he gives did i hear gives he gives life adam only, adam could not give life okay Do you see in verse 45 there, it says, thus it is written, the first man Adam became a living being, meaning he possessed life. The last Adam, what? Became a life-giving spirit. Jesus imparts new life. First comes the natural life from Adam, then comes the spiritual life from Christ. Adam was from the earth. Jesus is from where? From heaven, and in verse 48, we see that all who are in Christ will be like him in the sense that their bodies are suited for heaven. And in verse 49, we see that we will bear Christ's image in our glorified bodies. All of this boils down to answer number three. Remember what the question is? How are the dead raised? Verse 35. What's answer number three? If you want to know how the dead are raised and what kind of body they come with, then know this, that Jesus Christ, the giver of life himself, grants to us new bodies from his life-giving spirit that's answer number three are you are you corinthian christians so dense are you so foolish that you cannot understand this simple reality that jesus is strong enough to give us new life it's simple it's not that hard this is paul's defense of the resurrection the question then that we have to ask ourselves is where do we go from here it it would uh behoove us to do this in quick summary form here Question, how are the dead raised and what are their bodies like? You got that? That's the question. How are they raised? What are their bodies like? And this is coming from a a position of of unbelief, right? Because we already saw earlier that they were saying uh, we don't believe in the resurrection. And so you almost can sense a sense of sarcasm here. Okay. If you say they're raised from the dead, how are they raised? What are their bodies like, Paul? And so answer number one. Is this, if you watch one dead thing go into the ground and rot, and life comes from that, why is it hard to watch another dead thing go into the ground and rot and life come from that? And what's the example of that? Seeds. You see that all the time. That's answer number one. Answer number two is, why is it so hard for you to see that our resurrection bodies will be similar yet different? Open your eyes and you'll see that God's creation is comprised of differences, okay? <laughs> you, why are you asking this question? Open your eyes. God did not create just one thing. Of course he's going to resurrect us, and it's going to be some differences in that. It's not going to be corruptible bodies anymore for one. Okay? And answer number three, as we just saw, of course, is if you want to know how the dead are raised and what kind of body they come with, then know this, that Jesus Christ, the giver of life himself, grants to us new bodies from his life-giving spirit. Now, one might wonder, how might one apply this particular passage to our own lives? And of course, one application is that Paul has equipped us as we engage other people in conversation with some certain tools and arguments to use in defending the doctrine of the resurrection. That's a given here. But what are some other ways that we may apply this? You might remember that I had said earlier that there are only five imperative verbs in the whole section, and our particular section had none of them. There's no commands, There's none of that and so how might we apply this particular passage well i'm going to give you three applications and i'm going to slowly work through these and explain how these applications come from this particular passage and the first one is simply don't fear have hope okay don't fear have hope and the reason that we can uh, pull this particular application from this passage is because of uh, this bridge that we'll make between 1 Corinthians 15 and 1 Thessalonians 4.13, which says this, We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, a.k.a. those who have died, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. Right? You don't need to grieve or fear Over those who have died before, because we have hope of the resurrection. It's not found in tanks of liquid nitrogen, okay? It is found through Jesus Christ. It is found through the gospel. The point here is that because we know the resurrection is certain, we can have hope that our relatives who have gone before us, as well as one day when we die, will have life eternal. So don't fear, have hope. Number two, and by the way, that is hope through the gospel, okay? This is not hope circumventing the gospel. This is hope through the gospel. We know that we have life through Christ, through repentance and faith in him. That's application number one. Application number two is keep this present life in perspective. I'm, I'm, I'm going to confess to you that we're going to walk on a little bit of a tightrope here, okay? And re- remember this, our present bodies, we, we do not have our resurrection bodies yet, correct? Right? These are not our resurrection bodies. Meaning that we will not in this life experience the fullness of heaven. Correct? There is still sorrow here, and it is okay to be sorrowful. Okay? There's still brokenness here. There is still weakness here. There is still all of those things here. Okay? What I have in mind is certain theologies that try to treat this life as if it were the next life i am give you an example, okay? The prosperity gospel movement has a tendency to do this, right? Your best life now, okay? Health, wealth, and prosperity now, right? Now, here's where I'm saying we're walking a little bit of, of a tightrope. I'm, I'm not saying that um, we want to be sickly, I'm not saying that we ought to strive for, um, you know, being weak and all of those kinds of things that happen here. We, we know from Scripture that we are commanded to do certain kinds of things. We are to pray for one another to be healed and all those kinds of things. But we need to just simply keep in perspective that we're not there yet. So don't claim what the prosperity gospel claims that you can have everything from heaven right here and right now. Is that So keeping this present life in perspective. Um, there's also certain theological movements that want to say that you can have sinless perfection here and now. Now, again, here's the tightrope that I'm walking. I'm not saying pursue sin. In fact, we ought to, to, to rigorously pursue holiness and righteousness. Okay? But there are going to be people that will come along and say, you um, can be sinless and I have attained sinlessness. Did you ever hear, by the way, there's possibly an apocryphal story, uh, not totally sure if it's true or not. But did you hear the story of when this happened to C.H. Spurgeon? Anyone ever heard this story before? C.H. Spurgeon was at some sort of a conference or a pastor's retreat or pastor's fellowship And one of the pastors got up at this conference, and he preached that you can attain sinless perfection. And he says, not only can you attain sinless perfection, I have attained sinless perfection. And as the story goes, Spurgeon retreats to his quarters for the night, and he is staying up all night long, wrestling and praying, and basically he's asking God, how can I prove to everyone that this guy is wrong, that he's, that he's full of himself. And as the story goes, they were all, conference attendees were at breakfast the next morning, and an idea flew into Spurgeon's head, and he picked up the pitcher of milk, and he walked over to the speaker, And he dumped the entire picture on the guy's head and said in that moment, everyone knew he had not attained sinless perfection because of the way that he reacted in anger to this particular thing. We cannot claim more than what we have right now. We have not attained sinless perfection yet. And so the call for us is to keep this present life in perspective. That's number two. Number three is to be a plotter. Um, This one, you might say, how are you pulling that out of this text? And I actually am pulling it directly out of this passage, but we didn't get this far yet, and I'm kind of giving you a sneak peek to a future message on this. I want you to look at 1 Corinthians 15, 58, because... How does Paul himself apply this passage? If we were going to say, how ought we to apply 1 Corinthians 15? Well, the most logical way to find that out is, how does 1 Corinthians 15 apply itself to us? And this is one of the five imperative verbs. And so in verse 58, Paul says, Therefore, my beloved, based on everything we've just talked about, the resurrection... Be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. That's how he applies it. In other words, when I say be a plotter, that means continue to obey, continue to pursue Christ's will, continue to go on. This is interesting because one might ask this question, how is a theological treatise on the resurrection from the dead at all applicable in my life? or what relevance does this chapter have for my day-to-day existence on this earth and the answer is in verse 58 somehow some way paul thinks that there is a connection between the resurrection of our bodies and the command to be a plotter somehow he thinks there's a link tying those two things together and there is this is inspired scripture here paul says there is a link between these two realities The connection is this. Here's the connection. Here's everything that we looked at today. Draw a line to verse 58. And what that line consists of, the way it connects, is this way. Your labor and your work in this life has value because of the resurrection. Now, we could say the opposite, and maybe it'll make this a little bit clearer. If there is no resurrection, then your labor has no value, right? If this life is it, this is it. We This, this theme has come up multiple times in 1 Corinthians 15, and I don't apologize for saying it again. If this life is it, then eat, drink, and be merry, and go do what you want to do. <laughs> Stop. Give up your nine to five. Why why feed your family? Who cares about that? Just live up your life. Don't sacrifice for anyone else's need. You see how if there is no resurrection, your labor is in vain. Since there is a resurrection, your labor is not in vain. There is something valuable in what you do because of the resurrection. We are called to labor we are called to obey, we are called to pursue um, obedience and holiness, and we are called to have children, and to build churches, and to build communities, and to honor Christ, and to clean our homes, and to feed our families, and to do all of these kinds of things. And all of these things, if they are done in the Lord, are valuable because of the resurrection, because of the work of Jesus Christ. And I do want to just draw a little bit of attention to this last phrase in the Lord as we kind of wrap this up your labor, he doesn't say your labor anything is not in vain, he specifically says that it's labor in the Lord meaning that it is done enabled through the work of Christ it is done for the glory of Christ not for your own glory or for your own benefit but ultimately for his here's here's what we need We need Christ, and we need his grace to enable us to obey, to give us the desire to obey. We need the gospel, meaning this, that if you are one here today, and you don't know Christ, the call for you is to repent and believe in the gospel. That will rescue you from vanity. Christ rescues us from Solomon's vanity that we saw in Ecclesiastes. Christ rescues us and redeems us from the vanity of this world, and gives us meaning and purpose because of what he does through through redemption. Thank you, God, for your grace to us. We pray that you might help us to apply this passage to our own lives. We thank you for your grace. In Christ's name, amen.